If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. In some sense, you may not even need to open your Bibles today because our text today is what we know as the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today we finish our series on a kingdom worldview. As we consider the basic assumptions uh, about reality that we should, if we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that we should hold to. In order to have a worldview or to fashion one, because everyone has a worldview, but they oftentimes don't understand or don't even realize that they have one, it's helpful to have questions. And then as you answer these questions, you slowly but surely begin to fashion and to form to understand what your worldview is. So far, we've looked at nine questions. And today we will look at the tenth and final question. We've looked at what is first cause, what is the nature of reality, what is a human being, what happens after death, what is the basis of morality, what is the nature of evil, what is the nature of knowing, what is the place of culture, and last Sunday we looked at what is the nature of power. I would remind you that these are tied together, and not only are they connected, but there is overlap as well. And so some of what we will look at today, we've heard earlier in this series as we look to, uh, to answer the question, the 10th question, what is the nature of history? As you can imagine, as someone who teaches history, uh, this is an important question. And yet, I found this difficult to deal with because it's a really unwieldy Question and there's so many different aspects to it. To make it more manageable, I've broken it up into sort of smaller questions that will help us have a sense of what is the nature of history from a kingdom worldview point of view. First of all, let's look at some definitions. Um, but perhaps we should begin by asking ourselves if history is important. Many, I'll say students, find history to be boring. It's names, places, dates. Um, They're not so sure it's important. What does it have to do with their lives today? History is important. Have you ever considered that God has commanded the study of history? Um, When the Passover meal was first given, instructions were given to Moses and Aaron. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the the Egyptians. So the meal itself was to be a teaching moment in which the children are to be reminded of what happened to their parents 
years before. And then as Israel is coming into the promised land decades later, Joshua gives instructions. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Time and again, the Israelites are told to remember, to remember what God had done for them in the past, their history. And they are to pass that knowledge on to their children. When we come to the book of Psalms, Many of the Psalms are a recalling of what God has done in the past. I could choose many, but I'll choose one from Psalm 136, which is, we think, a responsive because every verse has the the second part is the same. His love endures forever. To him, that is God, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. So history is important. God certainly thinks so. Parents are to instruct their children. In the book of Psalms, which is... uh, Some of them are prayers, some of them are songs, but they are intended to remind the Israelites of what God had done in the past. We're not Israelites, we are centuries, we're millennia later, and yet these are reminders to us of what God has done in the past. There are different views of history. Some see it as being linear, that is, it's a straight progression. Others see it as cyclical, Uh, Just a side note, interestingly enough, uh, traditional Southeast Asia does not embrace either view, uh, but rather sees history as consisting of oscillations between a golden age and an age of madness. But as we start, let me just lay it out here, we believe that history is in fact linear. This is what we find in the Old Testament. The Hebrews viewed history as linear. They had a strong view of history. They saw it as a series of events as part of a larger sequence. It begins with creation and progresses through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and the Exodus, the time of the judges, the time of the kings, and the time of exile. These events were not only part of a story told as history, but history itself is part of an unfolding cosmic drama. More on this in a bit. For early Christians, history was real as well. Not not in the modern sense that students oftentimes think of places, dates, you know, uh, people's names, but rather in terms of an unfolding drama, a cosmic drama that is written in history. They divided history into two parts. The one part was before the incarnation, before the coming of the Messiah 
we now call that the Old Testament. And the second part, we would call the New Testament, which begins with the incarnation, Jesus coming into the world, his first appearance coming into the world. And this has not yet ended. It will end when he comes back a second time. The Bible is primarily a story of God's acts in creation, not a list of religious doctrines or devotional readings, which is oftentimes the way people view scripture. One writer put it this way, the Bible is unique among the sacred scriptures of the religions in that it offers an interpretation of history as a whole, human history and cosmic history, and not just the life of man apart from this history. Its center of attention is not, if one may put it so, the possibility of man's escaping out of this world into another. It is the promise of God coming into this world to redeem it and to complete what he has begun. So what is a workable definition of history? I would say it is a remembered past. Simple enough, we'll build on it as we go along, but it is a remembered past. Some would argue that history is the past. Some would say it is a study of the past. Others would say it's a representation of the past. For many, history refers to events, and such events make up a knowable past. That is to say, there is, in fact, much about the past we don't know. We honestly don't know. There are events that occurred people who lived and died that we have no knowledge of. In a real sense, we can't remember them. And so history as a remembered past is now getting a a bit shaky. But these people lived, these events occurred. They have significance. History can be a meaningful sequence of events as well as a meaningful narration of events. It can be, but it's not necessarily a written account of these events. As we saw with the children of Israel, it's a meal that they are to remember what what God did in Egypt, the Passover. And then when they get to the Jordan River, we have rocks that they've been taken out of the river and put on the Canaanite side, a reminder of what God did in bringing them into the promised land. As we study history, we begin to see connections, patterns, principles. And here we come to the central principle, which we will get to at the end of the sermon, and that is, what does history mean? The second thing to look at is the connection with time. And here I want to repeat some of the stuff we looked at when we uh, answered the question, what happens after death? And that is by looking at the matter of time. Um, The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And a few verses later, we read, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Time is something that God created and history happens within time. Okay. This is important for us to recognize. On the seventh day, God ceased from the work of creation. That's why we have a seven-day week. Most people don't even realize that that's where it came from. Some of the implications we see of this is that God is not limited by time. 
God is the one who created time, evening, morning, first day. Okay? But time is limited. Time is not infinite. And so when we talk about a linear uh, approach to time, we'll come to this in a minute, we don't see it as an endless line. We see it as having a beginning, and it in fact one day will have an end. Time is limiting. In the same way that we cannot walk through walls, we cannot travel back and forth in time. We would like to. It's the stuff of much fiction, but it is just that. It's fiction. We can remember the past. We can imagine what the future is, but we, in fact, live now in the present moment. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, time, as with the rest of creation, has been affected. And now time becomes a burden. It becomes frustrating. We read uh, and we sang from Psalm 90 how that time, you know, a thousand years for God is as a moment, but for us, our time here is so limited. Okay? We are dependent creatures. We are wholly dependent on each other, on our families, but ultimately we are dependent upon God. And while we would like to be free and autonomous and individuals, we in fact need each other. Um, We are creatures, and creatures live in time. We are created, and so is time as well. In the past, we've considered three dominant views of time the cyclical, the chronological, and the covenantal. Let me just review a bit. Having concluded that life is short, some have come up with the idea that we're not here only once, that we come here and then we're gone, but then we come back in different forms. This view sees time and history as cyclical. One might argue time repeating itself argues that we have all experienced successive reincarnations and everything comes back to the place where it began. Time is seen as a wheel. It's not a straight line, but a wheel, something that is circular. And there's some appeal to this. I mean, the earth goes around the sun once every year. We have four seasons. We're in winter right now. There will be spring, summer, and fall. And then there will be, again, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And so there's something very attractive in the notion of this repetition. Um, But this is not a biblical view. This is not a kingdom worldview. There's a chronological view of time. The view that time is linear, that is, versus cyclical. But many people today who hold this view hold it without God, without any sense of transcendence, something beyond us, without any sense of eternity and the supernatural. This also is not the kingdom worldview of time. The covenantal view is what we find in Scripture. It's quite different from the first two. It requires revelation. It isn't something that we can simply sit down and reflect on and come up with on our own. 
we need someone outside of history to tell us about time and about history. As we've seen in this series, a kingdom worldview is in conflict with the surrounding culture, how the surrounding culture answers the questions that we have posed. And when it comes to history, this is clearly the case. The Christian faith needs history. It is not ahistorical. It has its roots in history. But with the rise of modernity, of the Enlightenment, if you wish, we find a turning away from a biblical view of almost everything. We saw this earlier in the series, that now instead of speaking of creation, people began to speak of nature. And if you don't speak of creation, then you don't have to have a creator. You simply have nature. And as a result, um, when it came to history, rather than seeing God as being involved in human history, it was simply seen as a collection of facts. We saw this in the, the sermon on the nature of knowing, that knowledge for the modern world is information, it's facts, it's statements and proofs. Just give me the facts. It's one reason why people hate history so much, because it seems to be very boring. It's just facts. It's just information. But the one thing that was attractive about this was it, it posed the possibility of being objective about history. I don't put my opinion in. I simply say, these are the facts. On this particular day, day, in this particular place, this particular individual did this. Or this battle was fought on this day in this place. And so I'm not making any judgments. Okay, I'm just being objective about history. Um, people have come to see that this is in fact quite insufficient. No one really has the possibility of being totally objective. And so postmodernists, postmodern historians particularly, have rejected the whole notion of an objective, uh, an objective history, an objective approach to history. One of the things we find in the world today, and this is sort of drifting out of modernity into post-modernity, is a rejection of a meta-narrative. What is a meta-narrative? It is an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meanings to their experiences. Okay? In other words, every culture lives by a story. Every culture has a meta-narrative. But the world in which we live, we have so many competing stories. We saw this with culture. We're multicultural. That at a certain point, people reject this. The idea that there's one story for everybody. One story that tells us how we got here, how things got messed up, how they can get better, is rejected. Okay? One of the reasons it's rejected is if you accept your story, then you have to accept the authority from that story. If, in fact, let's say, you, let's pretend you're part of a tribe somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you have a story about how you came to be and who your enemies are, who your allies are, what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed not to do, 
if you embrace that story, well, then you're embracing authority. And modern people today is like, yeah, you're not the boss of me. You're, there's no story that is going to tell me what I should or should not do. One author has observed, I suggest, in fact, that the gospel of the kingdom of God is the only valid universal meta-narrative. It's the only valid one. The only one which is not ruthlessly homogenizing and totalitarian because it is the only one based on self-sacrificing love instead of worldly power. The only one offered by a king on a cross the only one offered by a conquering lion who turns out to be a slaughtered lamb. I find it fascinating that people want to reject the biblical meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, but then will take on any other meta-narrative that comes along. While claiming to reject meta-narratives, they in fact embrace multiple meta-narratives. Fourth question, what is the meaning of history? And here is where the kingdom worldview certainly conflicts with all others. When it comes to the question of time and of history, one may ask, is it linear? Is it cyclical? And this is, these are questions I ask my students. But the third question is, is it meaningful or meaningless? It used to be when I would give this lecture and I'd bring up the issue, is history meaningful or meaningless? The, the, the answer seemed obvious. If it's meaningless and we're wasting our time, let's all go home. And then I came across something from Aldous Huxley, who stated that when he came to see history as meaningless, he felt liberated. He was freed. History has no meaning. And I'm thinking, okay, you're telling me I just got a degree in something that has no meaning. Seems a waste of time and of money. But what he meant was, history has no meaning except what I give to it. I will give history meaning. Which means that for every person on the planet, there's a different meaning for what history is. Um, and like it or not, this is how many people unconsciously view history. And this is a terrible, terrible burden. Huxley felt liberated, but stop and think a minute. If it's up to you to decide what history means, first of all, you have to know what happened, okay? But secondly, it's all on you to decide what the meaning of history is. This is not a kingdom worldview. The whole history, the whole of history has profound meaning because it's bound up with the purposes of God. The meaning of a system oftentimes requires that someone be outside the system to be able to understand it. This is true of life, of the world, of time, and of history. The answer does not lie within us. We do not have that capacity to give history or to understand its meaning on our own. A kingdom worldview rests on the pattern we have seen time and time again. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. 
There is a beginning and there is an end. This is the meta-narrative of human history. God created the world. One day the world will be finished. We enter the eternal state. It has a telos. It's a word we've used in the past. It has a purpose. It has an end. There's a target. There's a goal in the future to which human history is pointed. It has meaning. History has meaning because the one who made it, who made time, created time, has given it meaning. As we've seen, creation was the result of love. God created the world not because he had to, not because he was lonely. God created the world out of love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John tells us twice in 1 John 4, God is love. And as we saw in looking at the doctrine of creation, it isn't primarily about the act of creation, okay? And it's not about the nature of creation. It's about the one who creates. He has revealed himself, but if we think we can figure it out on our own, then we are sadly mistaken. And the doctrine of creation is not about origins, and this is what a lot of debates are about, how did we get here in the first place? But in fact, where it is headed, its purpose, its meaning, and its goal. If you see human history as belonging to humanity and not to God, then you will misunderstand, you will miss the boat, so to speak, in a rather basic and fundamental way. On the other hand, if as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you understand that God created the world, we are here as a result of his creation, then you also believe that creation has a purpose. History has a goal. It has an end. That is to say, we believe that God created the world not just because he was bored, not just for something to do, but there was, in fact, a goal in mind. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and there they were to learn, they were to mature. They were without sin, but they were, in a real sense, immature. They needed to learn by experience. They needed to grow. And God's purpose for them was one day that they would go out and subdue the earth. They didn't get to that point because they did not trust God. They trusted in themselves. And so they sinned and plunged the world into darkness. We call this the fall. And again, this is something we've seen several times. Most ideologies today, most meta-narratives today, do not begin at creation, they begin with the fall. They begin with a dark world, a world that's messed up. And so this ideology comes along and says, I have the answer, I can fix this. No sense that, well, wait a minute, did somebody create this world? Did he have a plan for it? Is there a meaning, is there a purpose, is there a goal? Some may have been puzzled and confused by what we've seen in the last few years as people have sort of vented their anger, their hatred, 
their frustration against figures of the past, tearing down monuments and wanting to erase people from history. Oz Guinness, in a series, uh, in his book on time, when we did a, a theology of time, I mentioned this, today a key way in which modern people distort the past, slash history, is through victimhood and hate. That is to say, they have joined Huxley and they are assigning their own meaning to human history. They see creation as lacking purpose. Nature, which has taken the place of creation, can only be given purpose by human beings. And so you find radical, that's okay, anger, frustration, and violence, and that's not okay, in an attempt to reshape the world into what they think it should be, to give meaning to history as they think it should have it. The fact is that God created the world. Adam and Eve sinned, but God's project has not been thwarted. He began the project of redemption. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in the beginning of the book, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us in all wisdom and understanding. And he made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Simply put, the new creation, the consummation, that is God's purpose. Even before, did you catch that? Even before God created the world, he chose us to be his children. And when the times have reached their fulfillment, then in fact we will have the consummation. We will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more things in this regard with the meaning of history. First of all, human beings are significant. The significance of image bearers. This is something either we forget or is denied by many. In our time, the two felt needs of many are a need for identity and a need for significance or meaning. Our text is the Lord's Prayer. And in this Lord's Prayer, we hear, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. One might ask, why is this a part of the model prayer? Why should I be bothered to forgive others? Because human beings have significance. They have significance. And history is a record of God working in and among those who are made in his image. I find as I get older that I am... I struggle more and more when I'm watching a movie or TV or whatever. When there is extreme violence, 
But also when you have these these armies that are clashing, you have hundreds if not thousands of men that are fighting against each other. When the battle's done, you see all these bodies. And I can't help but thinking, what is that person's story? He died in this battle, but who were his parents? Is he married? Does he have children? Somehow, in our violence, we have erased the significance of the individual. And that's not right. A kingdom worldview says, in fact, individuals are significant. And that's why we were to forgive one another. If you weren't significant, why would I bother? Why would I bother to forgive you? Because you are made in the image of the Creator. And the second thing, and this is, in fact, the point of this whole sermon, is that Jesus Christ is the center of history. He is the axis upon which all human history turns. The coming of Jesus into the world was God's most decisive intervention in human history. And it gave meaning to human history. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to realize and understand that Jesus of Nazareth was a real human being, a person in human history whose life and teachings may be investigated by academic methods. When Jesus stepped out of the tomb that Easter morning, that was the climax of human history. It is the apex. We have everything that comes before and everything that comes after, but it all points to him. So if you ask yourself, why am I here? Why are we here? Is it to make a name for ourselves? Is that our line would continue? That a hundred years from now, people will remember us as their ancestors? We are here as citizens of the kingdom because Jesus came and gave his life. That is the meaning of history. I fear that for many Christians, this is something they don't recognize or they have forgotten. All human beings are historians. Some are professional historians, but all people are historians. History is something we all do. It means that everyone knows a bit of history. The problem is we don't always remember it accurately, and we don't understand the meaning that we should uh, appreciate that it has. One writer has concluded this. The story the church tells as a competitor in the field where secular historians tell the story of a society, a nation, a civilization, or the story of the world. The church's story is not a different kind of story from the one historians tell. Its difference is with respect to the interpretation of the records, which are the raw material common to them all. It's not a special kind of history isolated from the work of secular historians. It is, if you like, a counter-history, interpreting the same evidence in different ways. It is that God made us. We fell into sin. God is redeeming us through Jesus Christ. And one day we will spend eternity with him. Years ago, decades ago, uh, Margaret Halsey uh, wrote an article. I think this may have been in Newsweek. I'm not sure. It was entitled, What's Wrong with Me, Me, Me? Um, 
the surrounding culture, the 70s were known as the me decade, um, but I think somehow it still applies today that we think it's all about us, it's all about me. When we think of the purpose of why am I here, what is history, um, a lot of people cannot be bothered with it because it has nothing to do with me. This is all about me. Here is the story of history. God created the world in love. Okay? Man rebelled against God's authority and the world fell into darkness. But God did not give up on his project of creation. He began the project of redemption. It began with Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, then on to Moses and the Exodus, to the judges, to the kings, and to the exile, but finally to the person of Jesus. What we find is that Jesus succeeded where Abram failed, where Adam and Eve failed, where Israel failed. He brings meaning to history. The redemption of humanity, it's all headed toward that goal of consummation of eternity with God. He has given conclusive meaning to history. And so when we say the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're speaking of history. And we're praying that God, in fact, would accomplish his purposes in history. Yes, in our lives and the lives of others, in our country, in this world, but that God would accomplish his purpose. History has meaning. It has the meaning that God has given it. And as his people, we need to understand this. We need to understand this. Otherwise, we will fall in line with everyone else who says, I decide what's important and what's not important. I decide who's important and who's not. I decide who's significant and who's not. It's all about me, me, me. And it is not. It is about the one who came and told us about the Father who sent us the Spirit. I mean, otherwise, why are we here? We are here as part of the story of redemption, the story that God is telling. And one day it will end when we are with him eternally. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are times, probably a lot of the time, in which we tackle things which are beyond our complete understanding. And yet, being human, we imagine that we, in fact, can understand these things. We take on your job. We imagine that we can give meaning to history. We find ourselves drifting away from you, becoming our own gods, or embracing the idols of ideologies that tell us a different story than what you've told. We live in a world that is in rebellion. A world 
that sees things very, very differently than what you intended. We live in this world. We breathe its air. We rub elbows with people, this world. And if we're not careful, our worldview will not be a kingdom worldview. We've tried, I've tried in these past few Sundays of looking at the question of a kingdom worldview to begin to understand how it is we who are your people are to view things. In the process, we've come up against the surrounding culture which views things very differently. May your spirit work in our hearts. May you open our eyes to see the reality of things. May your spirit do his work as I've tried to explain, uh, to spell out, to lay out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. May he do his work, I pray. I thank you for bringing us together this first Sunday of a new month. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.